You're listening to the Common Descent Podcast. Hello, Will. Hello, David. And hello, listeners, and welcome to episode 42 of the Common Descent Podcast. Hi, everyone. Today, we are zooming in on a very specific group of dinosaurs, much requested to talk about dinosaurs here on the podcast. (laughs) Weird. The Spinosaurs, or more scientifically, the Spinosauridae. This is a group of often large, predatory dinosaurs that have those long croc-like faces, and in some cases, like Spinosaurus, the famous one, the big sail on the back. Mm -hmm. Very cool group. Much requested group. A very handsome group. And very, yeah, good looking group. Yeah, good very faces. Catchy. Good faces. They do. <laughs> <laughs> Could be better. Could be better. But, uh, uh, you know, not the worst. I don't see how, but, you know, teach I like own. that they have those sinuous necks. That's, <laughs> at least they still have that. A little much there, I think. <laughs> <laughs> we are going to talk about what the Spinosaurs are, where they, you know, fit among dinosaurs. What belongs in the group beside the famous Spinosaurus, and then what we think we know about Spinosaur ecology and lifestyles. That That's one of those phrases that should be tagged on to everything that talks about dinosaur life and peace. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> what we think we know. They were a really cool group, so we're excited to talk about them, but mostly we're excited to talk about them because they are much requested. Yeah, they are. This subject... Spinosaurs, or Spinosaurus specifically, have been requested by three of our patrons, Mm -hmm. including Demi and Nick and Johnny, who sent us a message as of this recording three days ago (laughs) saying that his favorite dinosaur is Spinosaurus and would love to hear us talk about it. Well, Johnny, you chose a good time. I love when that happens. It's it's, happened a few times. Yeah, I I was working on the notes for the the Cambrian explosion stuff and the notification popped up for a request yep. about that early life <laughs> period. And I was like, oh, well, good timing. And then it was also requested by Michael on Gmail. Not one of our patrons, but we love him anyway. Yeah. Thanks, everybody, for the suggestions. Speaking of patrons, we've got a couple of new patrons to welcome to the fold. Welcome to our patronage, Karen and Nils, who have recently joined us, both, incidentally, the two first patrons that I had to message to ask how to pronounce their names. (laughs) Did not know. I guessed Karen correctly. I would have been wrong (laughs) about Nils. I was going to call you Nils, Nils. (laughs) I'm sure they've never gotten that before. (laughs) Just as a reminder, this podcast is supported greatly by the people who have joined us on Patreon. If you join us on there, you get cool bonus stuff like bonus audio recordings and the chance to have us mispronounce your name on the podcast. You could be one of the lucky few. (laughs) So if you're interested, look into that. Also on Patreon, we still have our poll up for patrons to uh, vote on what they want us to do next with their money. So check that out. And a couple more quick announcements. As you know, if you've been listening to the episodes of this podcast for a while, we have a recurring tradition that is coming around again. Every episode that ends in the number five is an episode about extinction. 
We've talked about specific extinctions in the past. Last time we talked about de-extinction. Mm -hmm. Episode 45 is coming up, and I've got an idea based on suggestions we've got in the past of what it will probably end up being. But if you have suggestions, send them in. Got a few episodes to collect ideas from you. So tell us what extinction topics you'd like to hear about. Yeah, because even if it doesn't come up in this next one, it'll be on one of the next ones after that. They'll put it on the list. And finally, our last announcement, and this is the last time you will hear this announcement. Will and I will be appearing, representing the Common Descent podcast in Atlanta, the very beginning of September, at DragonCon. Yes. We're going to be on a couple of panels. The two of us are going to be on a panel Sunday evening called The Science of Jurassic World. Mm -hmm. It's going to be the two of us, and also Trevor Valley. Some of you may be familiar with Trevor. He's a paleontologist, does some other cool social media stuff. We're going to talk about the science of the movies, which is going to be a ton of fun. Plus, we'll get to meet Trevor. That'll be exciting. Yeah, it'll be neat to have a, a group discussion of the sorts that we've done so far. It will. And I'm going to be appearing on a couple other panels other times during the con. I'm going to be on one called Geology and Science Fiction, also with Trevor and also with Mika McKinnon and other people that I also know from Twitter, which is pretty <laughs> exciting. <laughs> And then another panel called Stock Photo Science, which is going to be interesting. Not exactly sure how that's going to go, but it sounds like fun. So <laughs> if you're going to be at Dragon Con, come see us. We're going to be wearing our super cool Common Descent shirts. Yeah. Representing. Representing. Will's going to dress up at least at some point. Yes, I, I, I have one planned and everything so far is in line for me to get to dress up at least one day. So if you are in Atlanta... Check it out. This is August 31st through September 3rd, I believe. Check us out there. And if you're not going to be there, keep an eye on social media for pictures because there will certainly be some of those. And one more announcement, one more very exciting announcement. Starting the week after this episode comes out, all throughout September, we will be releasing another special series spin-off of the Common Descent podcast. We've been talking, hinting at this one for quite some time. Yeah, this has been our longest in-production project. It has. We've been working on this all summer. One of the things we heard a lot when we did our survey was that people really wanted to hear more interviews, mm -hmm. more from other paleontologists. And we took this to heart. We will be releasing throughout September what we are calling the Spotlight Series. Yes. Several episodes every Saturday that will include interviews with other paleontologists about their work. Instead of focusing on a subject, a topic, like most of our main episodes, these will each focus on a person. We will introduce you to a person who works in paleontology and let you get a chance to hear about the kind of stuff they do, research and otherwise. Mm -hmm. For this September 2018 run of Spotlight, just in case we ever do more of them, if you like them, we will, we have chosen the theme of invertebrate paleontology. Yes. So if you're interested in hearing from invertebrate paleontologists, or at the very least paleontologists who work on things that are not vertebrates, because we kind of cheated that one time, check out Spotlight. <laughs> it's going to be popping up all throughout September, starting with our first interview with a gentleman named Dave Marshall, who you might be familiar with as one of the main hosts of Paleocast. Yeah. So keep your eyes and ears out for that. I think that's everything that should wrap us up today. 
As you know, every episode before we get to our main topic, we like to look at the news to keep up with the news and talk about the news. Hey, Will, I believe you have some news. In fact, I do. I have some right here. Now, my first bit of news, uh, I picked because it's awesome, but also because it has to do with one of my favorite comic book villains. This is a bit of news on why lizards and salamanders regrow their tails differently. Oh. Yes. See, some salamanders and some lizards are able to regrow their tails, but salamanders regrow almost perfect tails, while lizards do not. Yes, they brought this up in The Amazing Spider-Man. Mm-hmm. The movie, and they called salamanders reptiles, if I remember yep, correctly. Yep, yep, yep. And so this <laughs> this idea is what the character, the lizard from Spider-Man, is based off of. But in that, in the comics, they kind of expand the idea to that lizards can regenerate just like a salamander can, and that's why he uses it to regrow his arm, and that's not what lizards can no, do. No, it's not. But we're going to talk about that. Cool. Now, this research is done by Aaron Sun et al., and it's published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. Uh, the article I'm reading is from Science News by Leah Rosenbaum. And basically what this is focusing on is, as we discussed, very famously, the lizards especially are well known for this. Some groups of lizards can lose their tail and replace it. Uh, Many can even actively detach you know, snapping yes. it and leaving the tail behind. Skinks are famous for the tail twitching, you know, continue to move so that it will lure predators away. And many salamanders are able to do this as well. This is this is not a unusual feature among these groups. The difference between them is that when they regrow a... If you've ever seen a lizard who's regrowed their tail, that's uh, even quoted in the article, it looks wrong. Like, the <laughs> the new tail looks off. It's not regrown yeah. properly. They said that even the color patterns can be mismatched and messed nope. up. It doesn't regrow the actual bones and internal structure. It regrows a facsimile, a placeholder, basically. This is going to give you the balance, but it's not going to do much else. And yes. that's about it. Salamanders, when they lose a tail, they regrow a tail. And this is meaning that they regrow the vertebrae and everything. And... That's the question comes back of why. Why is this difference? What's setting these two apart? And there's a great picture in the article, so there'll be a link, uh, as always, that shows you a um, cross-section view of the different cells in the tail before breaking and after regrowing. That really drives it home. When When you look at it normally, it has muscle and then nerve cord with, you know, vertebrae but they're they're still very cartilaginous you know they're not super tough bone because they're tiny animals but shows the cartilage of the backbone around the spinal cord on both of them then the tail is lost and regrows the salamander it looks the same muscle nervous cord cartilage the lizard it is basically a tube of cartilage and skin around it and that's it no nerves no real musculature so it's just a tube within a tube. That's another quote from one of the researchers. It's very <laughs> simple. Now, so they looked at salamanders first to figure out why are they so good at this. Salamanders are actually ridiculously good at regeneration. Certain salamanders have been known to be able to reproduce tails, limbs, and other body parts, even hearts and uh, eyes and 
parts of the brain have been known to be able to regenerate with them. Wow. So I, th this is the Wolverine level regeneration that your yeah. comic books <laughs> claim lizards have. And so they can regenerate like crazy. And as it would be suspected, whenever you're dealing with stuff regrowing, it's due to stem cells. Stem cells are right. base level cells that can diversify into various kinds of cells. So it's a one cell that could become an arm cell or a finger cell or a bone cell. The ones that are important with the tail for the big difference is neural stem cells. These are ones within the neural cord that become various nerve and neural cells. So these stem cells in the salamander is what allows them to recover their spinal cord down the tail, which is what allows them to continue to move it and function like a normal tail because the nerves are what tell your muscles what to do. No nerves, no movement. So these neural stem cells are kind of the key. So interesting. The next question was, are the lizard stem cells non-functioning or is there something about the lizard tail that doesn't let these stem cells kick in? So they took neural stem cells from an axolotl. It's a, a the famous salamander that has the feathery gills still sticking mm -hmm. out of its face when it's grown up and used a couple of different lizards. I believe they used the... Um, a knoll and the morning gecko were the two that they okay. focused on because they are very famous for regrowing their tails and they're uh, good for um, for transplanting. They they're show great success. So they took some of the neural cells from the salamander and put it into the tail bud of these lizards and they grew nerve tissue. What? They didn't like it didn't make a perfect tail. It wasn't quite that sci-fi, but it showed nerve tissue within the regrown tail. So evidently it's the neural stem cells of the lizard that have quote unquote gone faulty that have stopped being able to do this amazing regeneration. Interesting. And why and how they lost this feature, we don't know. So that's a question that still needs to be examined as to why lizards lost this. But one of the things that's pointed out is that kind of as a rule of thumb, this isn't like a hard rule, but the more complex the animal, the more difficult regeneration is. Yes. And on the whole, lizards are more complex than salamanders. So it may have just been they bumped, kind of like tax brackets, they bumped out of the <laughs> regeneration bracket of being able to regrow stuff in a cool way. Because lizards are the closest living relatives to mammals that still have regeneration. Once you get past them, you stop seeing that crazy regeneration. I have so many questions. I know, right? Oh, man. Well, one of the big things for me is to wonder... Now, you, you, you mentioned it as lizards losing the ability, but I wonder if instead salamanders developed that ability. That is a very good point. Uh, I do... And that also brings up the question of how has it looked throughout lizard evolutionary history? Mm -hmm. There is fossil evidence yes, of lizard tail loss. With the vertebrae and a, a crack running down the center for the tail to be snapped. Yep. That's fascinating. Where is that balance yes. between something you still want to be able to do, but it's too costly to do it well? You have to do it good enough for government yeah, work. Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. And to uh, on the note of figuring out exactly where the line is for the, the tail regrowth and limb regeneration. The end goal of this kind of research is to bring regeneration into 
medical field, you know, being able to yes. regrow lost limbs. And this is where we get back to that lizard metaphor from Spider-Man. Uh, they do hope to eventually have a mouse regrow its tail and see if that can happen in a mammal. The next step, they say, is to use CRISPR gene editing, which is when you can take genes from one animal and place it, or organism, really, and mm-hmm. insert it into the genome of another and potentially transfer over certain traits and use that with the salamander to the lizard to see if they can get full regeneration of a lizard tail. So that'd be step next on the list. <laughs> Very cool. It's it's some crazy stuff. If I looked up all the people who are on this paper, none of them have a tragically missing arm. So we are not entering the <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Connor. I had my box of radioactive spiders ready to go. <laughs> just in case. Excellent. Well, my first bit of news is also reptilian in nature, specifically regarding a type of reptile that we just simply do not talk about enough about and we don't on this podcast a brand new very exciting species of pterosaur pterosaurs are the flying reptiles of the mesozoic the big leathery winged not always big but sometimes big things like your pteranodon and your quetzalcoatlus and such the new species comes from a site in Utah and is unusual not only for the environment it was found in, but the age it was. This is research published in Nature, Ecology, and Evolution by Brooks Britt et al. And we'll put up the link to the article in Smithsonian News by Jason Daly. Pterosaurs were the first vertebrates to achieve flight. They were super common in the Jurassic and Cretaceous before disappearing at the end of the Mesozoic era, along with most of the dinosaurs. But they are extremely rare in the Triassic period. Yes. Before 200 million years ago or so, there is very little known about the early days of pterosaurs. All Triassic specimens of pterosaurs are from the Alps in Europe, except for one from Greenland. And that's it. He wasn't allowed to hang out with the rest. As the article explains, bits and pieces of around 30 pterosaurs. And that's about it. Wow. But now, another one has been found. In Upper Triassic deposits from the Saints and Sinners Quarry in Utah. (laughs) Because geologists love giving crazy names to their deposits. That's fantastic. This pterosaur is around 200 to 210 million years old. It has been named Celestiventus, which means heavenly wind. That's awesome. Which is a great name. <laughs> new genus, new species, Celestiventus hansoni. And what's really exciting about it is that these deposits are ancient desert deposits, an oasis in an ancient desert. In this deposit, they pull up slabs, big chunks of sediment bring them over to the lab at Brigham Young University. In this one particular slab, they pulled five croc fossils out, ancient crocodiliforms, and then once they got that nonsense out of the way, (laughs) they noticed there was a pterosaur in there. Not just any pterosaur. If you're familiar with pterosaur fossils, you will know that pterosaur fossils tend to be very bad. Yep. These, These are very delicate boned creatures. This specimen has parts of the face, the roof of the skull, the lower jaw, and part of a wing, which is pretty darn good. 
These fossils are so fragile that they actually, instead of taking them out of the rock, they 3D scanned them. That's cool. To get a sense of what they look like so you can preserve it without having to damage it by taking it out of the rock. Which isn't like a crazy uncommon way to handle pterosaur fossils because they are notoriously fragile. They are. In fact, the lead author, Brooks Britt, was quoted in the article as saying, quote, This one site, we've pulled out 18,000 bones from an area the size of a good-sized living room, <laughs> and there's only one pterosaur. End quote. With that one pterosaur, they were able to tell a few interesting things. It is a juvenile, not quite fully grown, with a wingspan estimated from the little bit they have of the wing to have probably been about one and a half meters or five feet, which is quite big for Triassic pterosaurs. Because the brain case is well-preserved, they can tell that it had good eyesight and a poor sense of smell, comparable to a lot of other pterosaurs. This suggests that early pterosaurs were a bit more diverse than we realized they were, and especially since it was discovered in an ancient desert deposit. This is the only desert pterosaur known from the Triassic. The next oldest pterosaurs from desert deposits are 65 million years younger than this. Wow. And they identified it as being a relative of the more famous Dimorphodon. Uh, if you don't know what Dimorphodon is, well, Google it because Dimorphodon is cool. It's the one that was horribly adulterated in the first Jurassic World movie. Yeah, it was. The littler ones. This suggests that the Dimorphodon family started off in the Triassic before Dimorphodon evolved in the Jurassic. And this is also, it keeps getting better, the only desert-dwelling pterosaur of the non-pterodactyloid parts of the pterosaur family tree. That's interesting. So pterosaurs are split into two main groups, the pterodactyloids and the rampharynchoids. So far, all those other desert pterosaurs are pterodactyloids. So this is just this wonderful, it's a temporal expansion of a particular family. That is to say, this family was around longer than we thought. Mm -hmm. It's a new environment for this group of pterosaurs. It's a new environment for this time period. It's a larger pterosaur than you might expect to find at this time. It's just all sorts of crazy surprises. That's really cool. Pterosaur fossil finds are really significant for a number of reasons. The fact that they're fragile is a big part of it. You know, so they're rare. We are slowly piecing together evidence about them because it's hard to find evidence of them. Yes. But it's also uh, not like more critical than anything else, but it, it is a, you know, more unusual lineage to be piecing together because it's the first flying vertebrate. Yeah. So this group was the first of the non-insects to take the air. So there's like a lot of questions there that are really interesting to be answered that are hard to answer because they're so delicate and rare because of the first ones that took to the air. Yup. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're just super mysterious. And anytime we find a new cool pterosaur, it's not only interesting because it's a pterosaur, but it's interesting because it's always rare. Yeah. It's and it, always it's... a rare find. Any any good find can have this effect with them more easily than others because we don't find good specimens. So when you do, it can just crack open a whole aspect of what we knew. Absolutely. It's awesome. Now, my next news source is also kind of about a, a, a 
less, you know, a less well understood group of organisms. Uh, we are going way, way back, though, all the way to the Ediacaran. Oh, episode 31. Yes. Some of you may remember that we had an episode on the Ediacaran biota, the earlier than the Cambrian explosion group of strange, squishy ocean, whatever they were. Yes. That dominated and were diverse and then seemingly disappeared when the Cambrian came around. Well, a recent bit of research actually suggests that they may have, at least one grouping of them, may have been some of the first animals that made it into the Cambrian, in fact. Ooh. Yeah, so it's rewriting that a little bit. Now, this is research done by Jennifer F. Hoyle Cuthill and Jian Han, and it's published in Paleontology. The news article I'm reading is from smithsonian.com by Bridget Katz, and this is dealing with the fact that the Ediacaran biota for a long time has been mysterious, much like our pterosaurs, but not because they're necessarily rare. We actually have found them sites all around the world now that we know we're looking at, that we realize they were fossils because beforehand there was the stigma that anything before the Cambrian can't be alive because yes. alive stuff showed in Cambrian. Yeah, we're but, talking 600 million years old here. Yes, indeed. So this is these are old, bizarre, very soft-bodied organisms that only preserved in soft silt, but they're so different than the other things we see that what they are, where they fall in the tree of life has been discussed and debated for a, quite a while and no one's really settled on an answer. There's been suggestions that they are fungi, that they're protists, that they're algae of some sort, that they're lichens of some sort, uh, or that they're some kingdom of life that no longer exists. They were some truly separate branch that came up and disappeared. And we don't know because they're so weird and it's so long ago that we don't have all the evidence of them. Some of these, and these are the ones we'll be focusing on, were, uh, there was all sorts of weird shapes, but the ones we're going to focus on were these frond-like bottom dwellers. They had these uh, plume-like shapes, uh, very similar to sea pins, though all evidence and research shows that they are not at all similar in <laughs> design to sea pins when you actually look at them. But they're similar shape overall, just when you glance at them, and they're set on the bottom, likely filter-fed, though we can't be sure. These were very common. They ranged in size. They ranged in shape. Some of these got to be like over a meter long. So like there were some large ones. Well, the recent research done by uh, our researchers here compared it to a Cambrian fossil organism that's actually a, a distant cousin of comb jellies. It's a, an extinct group hmm. related to the branch that now contains comb jellies and their cousins. And this organism also is frond-shaped, also has branching segments to either side, a symmetrical shape, but is a Cambrian organism. Now, this is a Chinese fossil known as Stromatovirus cygomaglenia. This organism is only found in China's uh, Chengyong formation and is very close in resemblance. So they took a closer look. They examined roughly 200 of the stromatovirus 
fossils. Wow. Yeah, so they they In, invertebrates, guys. <laughs> right? It's ridiculous. Uh, they analyzed a bunch of them to get an idea that they do indeed resemble, and then they use computer analysis to determine uh, the evolutionary relationship, comparing the Ediacarans and the Stromatovirus, as well as a number of other groups. And what the results for that analysis came out for was that Stromatovirus and the Ediacarans grouped together. They formed their own group, which in this research they named the the Petaloname or the Petalonomids. Not only did they form their own group, but this group would place the Ediacarans within Anomalia. So it would make these, at least the frond-shaped ones, animals. Interesting. So this is suggesting that this is a group that originated in the Ediacaran. Yes. A group of animals that, at least some of them, survived into the Cambrian through the Cambrian explosion. Yep. That's very... Well, it's because the, the conventional wisdom, right, the classic way to look at it is that pretty much all our recognizable animal groups showed up during the Cambrian explosion or afterwards. And that basically all of the Ediacaran biota died off before or right at the beginning of the Cambrian. Right, right. So this this would upset both of those. Ah, but there some something has survived. Yes. As a tagline once said. Now, not everyone agrees with this. This is not a a uh fully accepted proposal just yet. Uh at least some researchers have said they're not positive that these two groups share the same fractal branching in their fronds. And right. this is the fact that the Ediacarans are very well known for the fact that their fronds on the sides are repeated patterns, fractals, so that it's this branching pattern that repeats to create their shape. Right. And they're not sure that that is found in Stromatovirus. So that would kind of put, put a bit of a roadblock in this. But if yeah. they are related and the Petalonomids are viable as a group, then this means animal life diversified either sooner than we thought or was more complex and survived into the Cambrian. So it would really kind of rewrite how we've been viewing that initial diversification of life. Very cool. Yeah. Exciting. Well, speaking of invertebrates, I've got one last bit of news. I'm excited. About ancient insects. Not just any ancient insects. The largest of all ancient insects. This is research conducted by Andre Nell et al. in Scientific Reports, and there is no news article for this. <laughs> I saw the paper, and it was so cool, I just wanted to talk about the paper. Uh, so I don't have any, if there's any journalistic response out there, or, you know, peer criticism, I don't know it, so I'm just going to talk about this. <laughs> During the later part of the Paleozoic era, around 300 million years ago and thereabouts, there existed a group of insects known as the Meganurids. You might have heard them called griffinflies. Yeah. These uh, looked a lot like dragonflies, and indeed they are not proper dragonflies, but they're not too distantly related for, to dragonflies. They included the largest insects of all time, with wingspans up to 70 centimeters <laughs> or more. That is going on two and a half feet. That's a bug with a wingspan the size of a crow. Yep. 
Now, most of these are known <clears throat> from bits and pieces, wings especially. Not much is known, for example, about their heads. But that hasn't stopped a lot of artists and documentary makers and people from depicting them flying through the ancient Carboniferous forests. This study, Nell et al. decided to say, well, would they, though? Mm-hmm. And see what they could figure out about how these giant insects actually flew and lived. So they zeroed in on a species from France known as Meganeurites gracilipes, which is from just around 300 million years ago. The holotype, that is to say the original specimen, has a pretty complete head, as well as the thorax, a bunch of leg remains, wings, and a partial abdomen. This is a good fossil of an ancient bug. That's pretty sweet. So they said, let's take a look. How is it structured and how does that compare to our bugs today? Looking closely, they found strong mandibles with sharply acute teeth, which is what we see in predatory insects like modern-day dragonflies. And this is interesting. The thorax is slanted as you go back toward the tail end, which means the legs tilt slightly forward. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. This, combined with the fact that the legs have these strong spines on them, suggests that they were probably grabbing stuff out of the air. This is something we see in modern-day dragonflies as well. Indeed. And the other thing they noticed looking at this ancient bug was that its eyes are similar to the dragonflies today that are called hawkers, in that they had these big eyes that were expanded on the top of the head, which gave them excellent long-distance vision above them. Yeah. Because what hawkers do is they fly around, and when they see prey above them, they swoop up to catch it. It's, I've seen slow-mo of that hunting, and it's amazing. It's, dragonflies are my favorite insects. Yep. Hands yep. down. They're pretty, they're pretty darn good. They also took a look at the wings of these bugs and found that the wing structure, they don't have the same wing structures you see today in really agile flying otonautans, so things like damselflies and other insects that are zipping and zigzagging through trees and such. This, combined with the fact that they have these really long wings, makes them suggest that these big insects were probably not zipping around trees. They were probably best suited for open space, uh, riparian forest places, uh, perhaps where you're transitioning from one ecosystem to another, places where there's a lot of space to move around, similar to a lot of open space predatory dragonflies today. The ones you see zipping around fields and stuff like that. Exactly. So instead of zipping around and perching on branches and, you know, dodging and weaving through the the trees and such of the ancient Carboniferous forests, they suggest these giant ancient meganurid insects were probably living out in open habitats, swooping up, at least some of them, at the creatures above them like modern-day hawkers. Man... How cool it would be to take a kayak tour down a marsh with those things flying around. I like imagining two crow-sized dragonfly-type insects with their butts to each other. Yep, yep. Doing their mating dance above the lake. Yep. <laughs> oh, man. I, who, just imagine what their nymphs must have looked like. Oh, man. Just like little scorpion creatures. i was about to say like we call water beetles the day toe biters these would be ankle biters 
Like, Jeez, literally. <laughs> these would be toe devourers. Yeah, they, you would lose a foot. Man, I'm thinking about that mating ritual. Two of these, two of the biggest ones. Mega Neurites isn't one of the biggest ones, but like Mega Neura, the big ones, that's five feet of wing. That's a lot. Between the two, the mating pair. <laughs> wow. Fantastic. Oh, it's great. There's a reason they use this to make one of the Godzilla villains. <laughs> <laughs> Well, there you have it, folks. Some news from the news, from the world of news and news. And now, on to our main discussion for this episode. The dinosaurs known as Spinosaurs. Back in episode 21. We did a quick overview introduction to dinosaurs, what different kinds of dinosaurs there are. This is the first time we've gotten the chance to really zoom in on one particular group, one family of dinosaurs, the Spinosaurs. It's a cool group. Now, if you remember episode 21, you will remember that theropod dinosaurs are the mostly bipedal, two-legged mostly meat-eating dinosaurs, T-Rex and Velociraptor and all the favorites. One group within that major clade of theropods is called the Spinosauridae, named for the most famous animal in that group, Spinosaurus. Yes. Uh, Spinosaurus, of course, is the one. It was in Jurassic Park 3, <coughs> most unfortunately. But it's a real, you know, it's got that long croc-like face and the big sail on the back. It visually... That that gets you the idea. Yeah, it's and and these are a very cool group of dinosaurs. Very visually striking. Yeah, and very distinct features that spread throughout them. That's that are really cool. Yeah, and it's a fairly small group. Mm-hmm. There have been around a dozen species named, but stay tuned for taxonomic chaos later on in the episode. Oh boy. These include Spinosaurus, Baryonyx, Suchomimus, and a whole bunch of others. And we'll go through the different members of the group a little bit later on. But first, let's paint a picture of these dinosaurs. What does it mean to be a member of the Spinosauridae? How can you be a Spinosaurus? What can I say to get you to be a Spinosaurid by the end of this episode? As we said, mostly large-sized, bipedal, meat-eating dinosaurs. They are different from the more familiar meat-eating dinosaurs by having, most famously, these very croc-like faces. Very long and narrow, even. They're they're Long snouts. Yep. They have what's called a rosette at the end of the face, where the the face kind of constricts toward the end, and then you've got this this bunch of large teeth Mm -hmm. coming out of the upper and lower jaw toward the end of the face. And it's a, a very intricate jawline. Like, they don't have that nice, smooth wave that you think about on other predatory dinosaurs, or even, like, crocs, where it's that nice, just up... They have this, like, really sharp curves and hooks to their jawline where the teeth yep. al- almost intersect. It's really cool. And they've got this notch right before that rosette at the end where the, the premaxilla full of its teeth... The teeth of Spinosaurs are odd. They're very conical. They look like crocodilian teeth. Yep. If you look at alligator or croc teeth. 
Unlike most other theropod dinosaurs, they tend to have little to no serration. Mm-hmm. So serration is that, you know, if you imagine a steak knife or a shark tooth, it's got that saw blade edge going on, those denticles that help it to cut through meat. They do not quite have that. They have typically larger teeth in the front and back with smaller teeth in the middle around that notch area. Oftentimes the nostrils are located farther up the snout as opposed to being all the way down at the end. Many of them have crests on their skulls. Not, you know, we're not talking like Corythosaurus or anything crazy or Cryolophosaurus, but these little ridges, these little crest ridges. It's a little flag. Yep, just a little flag. Some of them even have unique qualities like a secondary palate. Oh, cool. Yeah, so the secondary palate is something you see in mammals and crocodilians. It's the thing you you burn when you eat something too hot and you get it in your mouth and it burns the roof of your mouth. That's, yeah. (laughs) Yep, separates the nasal cavity from the buccal cavity that is your mouth hole. It lets you breathe and eat at the same time. That's a really important part for us is that you can keep breathing in through your nose without inhaling whatever you're eating. Yup. So they have these very unique skulls, very iconic skulls. They tend to have big, beefy forelimbs. Their front arms tend to be big and beefy. So this is, you know, one of the reasons they chose Spinosaurus for Jurassic Park 3 is because it has so much in contrast with T-Rex, including those big arms. Yeah, where T-Rex is big-headed, tiny arm, this is a narrow-faced, big-armed predator. So it's, yes. it is very different from your typical predatory dinosaur in those ways. Spinosaurs also tend to share a very large, what is called first manual ungual, yeah. which is to say a thumb claw. They have this big old thumb claw. They're very famously in some cases. Really, really impressive. Yeah, this is what Baryonyx is named for. Yeah. Is that big, heavy thumb claw. So those Baryonyx was one of my first first runners for favorite dinosaur when I was younger. <laughs> More on Baryonyx later. <laughs> And then, of course, the thing that the group is named for is the spine. So Spinosaurus very famously has these ridiculously long spines coming out of its back vertebrae that are inferred to have been to, to have held up a sail. Uh, this is not unique to Spinosaurus. Other members of the Spinosauridae have some higher, some lower, none as ridiculous as Spinosaurus, but this is a feature that the upper parts of the vertebrae that the top projections off the back vertebrae tend to be very tall mm-hmm. uh, there are other animals in the dinosaur family tree that do this oranosaurus was an herbivorous dinosaur with a sail concavenator has a bit of this same sort of structure yeah. but it is a defining feature uh, across the spinosauridae so we have this picture of the spinosaurs these croc faced you know large with this sail or some level of spinage going on on the back but the record of these dinosaurs is not very good Mm-mm. they are not very they're, they're they're not good at making fossils for some reason yeah them and those pterosaurs yeah <laughs> especially compared to other theropod dinosaurs Spinosaur fossils have been found all over the world but it is very rare to find good body fossils There's lots of teeth. There's lots of fragments. Makes sense on the teeth. But even 
among all the spinosaur skeletons that have been discovered there are no complete skulls for example there are no complete limbs hmm. we tend to get fragmentary remains and what that means is that it's really hard to reconstruct them and there's been some interesting stories in the reconstruction of certain ones yep it's difficult to figure out their size, their weight, exactly what they looked like or how they held themselves or how many there were or <laughs> which ones are actually the same species and which ones aren't. There's a lot of arguing that goes on with Spinosaurs just because we don't have a lot to work off of. It's out there somewhere. There's two different Spinosaurs that are based off the butt and torso of the same species. <laughs> I certainly could be. It absolutely, absolutely. could happen. And it's, we're just going to have to fusion ha those two together. <laughs> Eventually. Now, that being said, there are a few places where the Spinosaur fossil record is actually quite good. Famously, the Kemkem beds in Morocco are a locality where there is a lot of Spinosaur material. These are very well-known depositional layers from the late Cretaceous that have just tons of dinosaurs in them, all sorts of different dinosaurs and crocs and pterosaurs and fish, and included among them are lots and lots of spinosaurs. Spinosaur teeth are a huge portion of the dinosaur remains of the Chemchem beds, including remains of things that appear to be Spinosaurus itself, nice. along with maybe some others. Mm-hmm. <laughs> There's also plenty of Spinosaur remains across North Africa, in Brazil, in Europe, there's quite a few. So they are, in certain places, are good places to find Spinosaur fossils. <laughs> the evolutionary history of Spinosaurs goes back as far as the late Jurassic. There are scant remains in the late Jurassic, so back earlier than 150 million years ago. But most fossil remains of Spinosaurus come from the Cretaceous, mainly the early Cretaceous. That's when a lot of the more famous uh, fossil remains are found. Like I said, they're in Africa, especially North Africa. You find them in Europe. You find them in South America. They are across southeastern Australia. There was recently a report of Spinosaur remains in Australia. Nice. Though they have not been identified just yet. Notably, the one to two continents that do not appear to have good Spinosaur fossil records are Antarctica, which, of course, <laughs> go back to episode 11, Antarctica's a problem, and North America. Oh, bummer. As far as I know, there is one foot bone found in North America from the Jurassic that has been considered possibly a Spinosaur. But that's it. For whatever reason, we don't have a good record of them in North America. Interesting. Now, that being said, they're also pretty rare to begin with. Yes. So... That it's hard to, and again, this makes it very difficult for us to get a good sense of where did they start and how did they disperse across the world. This is a very mysterious group of dinosaurs. As we've said before, this is where that preservation bias can really come in and kick you in the shin. Is If they're not preserving well or they only preserve in certain circumstances, uh, you you can find trends that may only be trends because the others didn't preserve you know yes they could have been running all over north america but if something caused them not to preserve because they didn't preserve well then we won't know 
Yeah, and preservation bias is something paleontologists have to keep in mind all the time. But when it comes to this group, that's one of the big uh, objections that you'll hear quite a lot is do, are, how confident are we that we know what we know about this group of dinosaurs yes, yes. <laughs> versus just not having a lot to work off of. Yeah, it's it's it, it, trying to make a statement off of just a very small portion of the picture that you know is most likely actually there that you just don't get to see. But maybe it's not, but probably is. <laughs> so it's <laughs> it's it's hard to make a definitive statement. It, it's hard to make a definitive statement on fossil animals in general, but especially rare ones. Yeah. And it's even worse with the Spinosaurs because not only are they charismatic, <laughs> yep. not only are they super weird and interesting, but they include some of the largest predatory dinosaurs of all time. Yep. Which means we really want to be able to say stuff about them. And reporters and documentaries and dinosaur fans really want to be able to say definitive things about them. Yep. We want to be able to... T it's, it's like having a teaser trailer for a movie. And you want to discuss, but you don't really have enough to discuss. <laughs> yes. Oh, no. It, yeah. Talking about Spinosaurus is like all the conversations about Infinity War 2. Yes, exactly. <laughs> like, we can postulate and come up with ideas as much as we want. <laughs> but we won't know until we get more actual information. So yep. it's it's hard. Taxonomically, uh, despite a lot of uncertainty in certain things, there are things that paleontologists are very confident about. Spinosaurs appear to be a true group. That mm -hmm. this handful of taxa, this handful of species, are in fact related to each other. They are monophyletic. Go back to episode 10 for more on that word. They all belong to one group, which is nice. We're not hopefully confusing multiple groups as one group. Traditionally, typically, you can split the Spinosaurs into two major subfamilies. The Spinosaurinae, which is Spinosaurus and its close relatives. And the Baryonychinae, which is Baryonyx and its relatives. Although that's argued as well, yeah. sometimes being shifted back and forth as taxonomists like to do. And then, like I said before, there's just a whole lot of arguing about which species are true species and which ones are actually the same species as this other one. There's a bunch of Spinosaur species that are just named from teeth. <laughs> yep. Which isn't great. <laughs> there's a bunch of species that are just named from fragments. And so there's all taxonomically when it comes to naming the species not how many you know have we identified these correctly as spinosauridae we know they're spinosaurs what species does this belong to and which of these species are distinct there's just constant back and forth on which that. which side of the wedding would they sit on it's yes it's yeah <laughs> the tooth thing is is that's that's a trouble that you have with things that lose and replace teeth is you can find lots of them, but not everything else. Lots of crocs will be identified by just a tooth. And that's tricky, especially when your teeth are just cones. Yes. And spinosaurs <laughs> have a lot of teeth. Yes. That's another thing they have in common with crocs is they just loaded up these jaws with teeth. Just lots of pointy teeth pointing in as many directions as they can get them to grab stuff. <laughs> Yes, yes. As far as where they fit in the giant family tree of dinosaurs, they are 
typically considered to be part of the Megalosauroidea, that is, close relatives of the Megalosaurs. Interesting. Which includes dinosaurs like Megalosaurus and Torvosaurus and Eustreptospondylus. So these are a... These are a group of large predatory dinosaurs that aren't tyrannosaurs and aren't (laughs) allosaurs. They're the other group. (laughs) We're here too, guys. Now, we're going to discuss a lot of the questions that come up about these dinosaurs. Why do they have these interesting features? Uh, If you keep up with dinosaur news, you will know that Spinosaurus is in the news all the time, lately especially. Yes, with people is. arguing back and forth about how it lived and how it behaved and all this. And we'll get into a lot of that. But first, let's talk about some of the members of the Spinosauridae, starting with a whole little section of the episode dedicated to the most famous member of the Spinosaurs, Spinosaurus itself. Yeah. Like I said, if you're familiar with any member of this group, it's going to be Spinosaurus. Yep. It was the Big villain in Jurassic Park 3. It's the one with the big sail on its back. It is by far the most famous one. It's also possibly the largest one. It's big. Spinosaurus fossils have been found across North Africa, Egypt, Morocco, Tunisia, and perhaps some other places. Size estimates for Spinosaurus range generally from between 40 to 60 feet long. Substantial which puts it, in terms of length, on par, at least on par, with the largest theropod dinosaurs known. Tyrannosaurus rex goes up in that 40 to 50 range. Carcharodontosaurus and Giganotosaurus are up in that 40 to 50 foot range. Spinosaurus, if not the very longest theropod dinosaur out there, was certainly in the top, you know, five or so of Mm -hmm. of dinosaurs that we are familiar with. I hesitate to even bring up weight estimates. <laughs> those, are, those are tough. Wait, it was big. It was a big dinosaur. Mm-hmm. Who knows? <laughs> it weighed a lot of tons, we're sure. Uh, si- tonnage estimates that I've seen range for between 4 and 20. So it, it was big. It was T-Rex sized or so. Now, Spinosaurus, most of the history of the Spinosauridae is the history of Spinosaurus. Yeah. The dinosaur Spinosaurus was first discovered, first known from fossils, discovered in Egypt in 1912. They were described and named Spinosaurus aegyptiacus, that is, the spined dinosaur from Egypt, named in 1915 by a paleontologist by the name of Ernst Freiherr Stromer von Reichenbach. That's a, that's a good, powerful name. <laughs> I love it. That's one of my favorite paleontologist names. <laughs> Ernst Freiherr Stromer von Reichenbach. I can't I can't picture this paleontologist without a very distinguished mustache. He I'm pretty sure he does have a very distinguished I, mustache. I'd assume just considering the period <laughs> that he would, but like you can't not when you're named that. That'd be weird. Your mustache grows grows three sizes for every extra name you have in your name. <laughs> it's- Stromer named, he's also, he goes by Stromer, like everyone refers to him as Stromer, I don't know why, uh, but I'll stick with it. He, you'll see him called Ernst Stromer in most places where they don't have the room to fit Ernst Freiherr Stromer von Reichenbach. <laughs> they can't handle it. <laughs> yes, there's only enough room in this article. 
the holotype, the original specimen of Spinosaurus, consisted of fragments of the jaws, some teeth, and dorsal vertebrae. So vertebrae from the back, which was enough for Stromer to notice the most iconic feature of this dinosaur, the fact that some of the spines coming off of its back are nearly two meters long. Yep. That each individual spine, the largest of them, sticking up from the top of the vertebrae. And these aren't extra, these aren't like a different piece. This is just the dorsal spine of the vertebrae. You have these two. If you feel your back, that bump, you can feel it along the back of your neck, especially where your neck meets your the top of your back. That's a good place for it. Those bumps are the spines at the top of your vertebrae. Some of those in Spinosaurus were as long as me. Yep, that means you could stand on Spinosaurus's back and still not see over the spine in certain sections. Yes. <laughs> unless, you, unless you were particularly tall. Yep. Stromer noticed... The spines, he noticed the unusual shape of the snoot, the snout, as well as the conical, not particularly serrated teeth, which were all unusual. He also described some other Spinosaurus material that came to be known as the Spinosaurus B collection, also from Egypt. And he named the Spinosauridae, which at that time was this one animal, Spinosaurus aegypticus. In 1936, he reconstructed Spinosaurus the way that it would be seen for many years as a pretty standard theropod Mm -hmm. standing up in kangaroo pose with a big wonky sail on its back. Yep. I had a toy, a Jurassic Park toy, in fact, and books that showed it just kind of looked like a allosaur or, you know, megalosaur, which is a big sail slapped on there. Oh, yeah. Even though the, the, the jaw fragments they found hinted at that long snout, mm-hmm. it was reconstructed for a long time as having a pretty standard theropod face and body, but with a sail slapped on the back. Yep. That would be the image of Spinosaurus for a long time. Understanding Spinosaurus any more deeply was limited by two things. One, the fact that you only had so much material to work with in the first place. Mm-hmm. And two, Mm. well, here's a story. The holotype of Spinosaurus, that material that Stromer described, was mounted in the Munich Museum, where they had a delightful paleontology collection and some displays of fossils. And Munich's a great city. Mm -hmm. It's got, you know, it had these cool fossils in it. Well, at the time, it was also the site of high manufacture of fighter aircraft, Mm-hmm. And as you can imagine, in 1944, a bunch of countries, including our own, decided they didn't like the fact that Munich was developing fighter aircraft because they were on the other side of World War II. So in April of 1944, the Allies bombed the heck out of the city, damaging the paleontology collections and completely destroying all of Stromer's Spinosaurus material. Yep. So add that to the list of reasons not to fight wars. (laughs) Destroying really cool dinosaurs material. What is it good for? Not Spinosaurus. (laughs) (laughs) Now, fortunately, Stromer wrote excellent descriptions, drew wonderful illustrations of the Spinosaurus material, 
and fairly recently photos have emerged of the mounted holotype specimen. Oh, nice. So we have a, a pretty good idea of what they looked like and a pretty good sense that Stromer did a good job describing and illustrating them. Cool. So they aren't completely lost, but it does mean that no one can ever look at them again. Yeah. That's why things like note-taking or doubling up you know, that's uh, why so many people are trying to scan fossils for yes. digital storage and 3D printing reconstruction. Because that way, if this ever happens again, if there's a, a landslide or whatever could happen that could destroy a, another collection, it won't just be lost to antiquity. Yes. But alas... For the latter half of the 1900s, there was not much research done on Spinosaurus. Nothing else was found, and no one could look at the originals. But starting in the 80s, the 1980s, we started to get a sense of more Spinosaurs. Uh, throughout the 80s into the 90s, we discovered other members of the Spinosauridae. And then in the late 90s into the early 2000s, more fossils were discovered that were identified as Spinosaurus. Woo! So within the last 20 years or so, we've gotten to see more of this dinosaur, including more skull, more teeth, more vertebrae, and very recently, a whole new skeleton, a, you know, decently completed skeleton that was identified as a young Spinosaurus, though it has been argued that it might not actually be Spinosaurus. But in any case, <laughs> all these new specimens have at least given us a much better sense of what Spinosaurus looked like i remember when that one hit the news that was a that was a crazy time oh we're gonna talk about that yeah just you wait <laughs> there will be discussions <laughs> <laughs> one of the more recent spinosaurus specimens that has come out just earlier this year actually was a toe bone that was identified as belonging to a early juvenile a very young spinosaurus that if it were the same proportions as a as an adult, would have been only six feet long. Aww. Just a little baby, about a tenth the size of a full-grown adult. I could I could fit that in my apartment. Yeah, you feed it fish and stuff. Yeah. Now, for a long time, the image of Spinosaurus in the media, after we got over the kangaroo pose, became the Jurassic Park three version. Mm -hmm. So, right, very T Rex like in its general proportions and shape except for the croc-like face the big arms and the sail now in recent years there's been a big rush of new research on spinosaurus which has included more discussions about how many species there are there are probably between one and three species okay there's the original egyptian species there's a more recently named moroccan species spinosaurus maracanus I hope and then, all the Spinosaurs are just named by location. I, absolutely, they should be. <laughs> we absolutely. continue this trend. This is a tradition now. <laughs> and then there's another genus of dinosaur that might also be... No. And then there's other bones that may or may not be Spinosaurus. So there's two species possibly recognized now. Another thing that is argued about a lot, especially in the last five years or so, yeah. is the posture of spinosaurus this is a big one and this brings us back to that 2014 paper by ibrahim et al this is the paper that very forcibly said we're pretty sure spinosaurus was a quadruped yep 
They described this new skeleton and comparing it with other remains, concluded that Spinosaurus had an unusually small pelvis, short hind limbs, and that its center of mass was far enough ahead of the hips that it must have been a quadruped. It wouldn't have been able to raise up on those back feet, at least for prolonged walking. Yep. And so there was this rush of artwork showing Spinosaurus as a quadruped, sometimes even knuckle walking. Yeah, those were very interesting. Where it's, it, once again, their wrists don't turn. With, so the claws like face, a gorilla. They face inward. So it's either curling them in or having to like duck walk them outward or something like that. Yep. And that's one of the reasons that a lot of people have disagreed with this. A lot of other scientists have said, you know what, the, sh the small pelvis and the small limbs appear to be at least somewhat true, mm -hmm. that this animal was oddly proportioned. But more recent discussions have pointed out that there's no evidence in the wrist or the shoulder from known material or from its relatives that it would have been adapted to walking on its hands, which is something that is not a quality of theropods in general. Yes. And more recent attempts to reconstruct the body proportions to identify the center of mass and its posture have pushed the center of mass back to the hips and shown that it would have been bipedal. So parts of that Ibrahim study, right, the weird proportions, at least in part, appear to be true. This was a strangely shaped dinosaur. It appears to have had small back legs and small hips, but not so much so necessarily that it would have been you know crawling on all fours or unable to walk around on land on its back legs like the other dinosaurs mm -hmm. the other theropod dinosaurs there's also been a whole lot of question and discussion and back and forth over how spinosaurus lived what it ate where it lived was it truly a semi-aquatic dinosaur this is one of the big discussions around the whole spinosaurid family Yes, it is. There is a bunch of evidence to suggest that these were water-loving dinosaurs. Because they, they have a lot of features for being fish eaters. Like yep. that face, even the claws can be argued that they're helping to grapple with slippery prey. And the, the croc face is, is very telling that it could very well be for fish eating. Absolutely. And so if that's true, then these would be the first because they've been around for a while, we've known of them for a while, the first group of dinosaurs known to have been specialized for an aquatic lifestyle. Mm -hmm. And we're going to talk about that a whole lot toward the end of the episode. But before <laughs> we get to that, let's work our way through the Spinosaurid family tree, because it's not just Spinosaurus, there's more in this group. When we return from our brief musical interlude, we will introduce you to some of the other members of the Spinosauridae. Stay tuned. So let us begin our tour of the Spinosaurid family tree at the best place to begin, the beginning. The oldest well-known Spinosaur, or at least the oldest named Spinosaurid, comes from the late Jurassic. The oldest known Spinosaur is Ostafricosaurus crassiceratus. 
This comes from Tanzania in the very famous Tendaguru Formation. So the Tendaguru Formation is like the African sister to the Morrison Formation in the United States. Cool. With stegosaurs and brachiosaurs and cool stuff like that. Ostafricosaurus was named in 2012. And what's really interesting about this animal, we don't know a lot about it, just like many Spinosaurs, but because it's the one well-known-ish early Spinosaur, it's our one good window into what the early evolution of these animals looked like. Yes. Particularly in the teeth. Its teeth, it's, it's identified as a Spinosaurid in part because it has very Spinosaurid-like teeth. The tooth structure is like Spinosaurs, but they are notably serrated. That's cool. They have these big denticles on them, like a lot of other theropods do, for that shearing uh, function of the teeth. That's very interesting. So it appears that the evolution of Spinosaurids reduced those denticles. Uh, and they, the teeth evolved in different ways in different groups. Uh, some evolved more smooth tooth crowns, others more ornamented tooth crowns. But the reduction of that slicing ability appears to have been something that kicked off after the late the late jurassic that suggests that the the spinosaurid family tree transitioned from a cutting bite to a grabbing bite yes it does which is very interesting that's cool that suggests all sorts of kind of feeding (laughs) behaviors now there are other jurassic remains known uh like i said there's a piece of a spinosaur from north america that is from a possible spinosaur that's from the jurassic but this is as good as it really gets so far (laughs) that dinosaur ostafricosaurus comes from the same place that a lot of the most famous spinosaurs do africa but the most famous spinosaur outside of spinosaurus itself is the one from europe and that's baryonyx baryonyx walkeri comes from the early Cretaceous, a time called the Baremian, around 130 million years ago. Baryonyx was named in 1986 from a specimen that came from England, the arguably one of the biggest birthplaces of modern paleontology. Mm-hmm. Lots of early paleo work done in England. But this was an unusual specimen, as particularly for the time. Baryonyx was the first reasonably complete large theropod known from the early Cretaceous. Oh, that's cool. And that part of the reason it's... Fa- when I was a kid, I had this bunch of books uh, written in the late 80s, I believe. Each one was about a different dinosaur. Mm-hmm. And there were 24 mm-hmm. dinosaurs, and one of the dinosaurs was Baryonyx. Yes. Baryonyx was pretty big. This, You know, we're looking at around 30 feet long or so, Allosaurus length or yes. thereabouts. The first part of Baryonyx discovered was its claw. And indeed, the name Baryonyx means heavy claw. Which is from... If I if I want a, a dinosaur gang member name, heavy claw. <laughs> oh, man. That is... Heavy claw. That is so good. You want I should show them the clamps? <laughs> <laughs> we mentioned early on that one of the traits of the Spinosaurus is that big thumb claw. Baryonyx has this 30-centimeter thumb claw, a foot-long claw. Jeez. And this claw led to the discovery of a fairly complete skeleton. Since then, other finds attributed to Baryonyx have been found in Spain and Portugal. 
There was a long time of arguing back and forth over whether or not Baryonyx and Spinosaurus were actually related to each other. These days we understand Baryonyx to be very much like Spinosaurus. It's got that long croc-like face. It's got the big claw. It's got relatively short spines on the back. So it didn't have a big sail or anything like that. It just had a, a high ridge or something. Yep. It has a crest above the eyes. It also has a version, at least, of a secondary palette. Yay. Like modern crocs, which is pretty cool. Now, Baryonyx is the one Spinosaur really known from Europe. There is another genus, Sucosaurus, which is known just from teeth from early Cretaceous England that was named in 1841 by Owen as a crocodiliform. Yeah. Only recently was it re-identified uh, to be demoted <laughs> <laughs> as a Spinosaurid and possibly also Baryonyx. Cool. But much of our Spinosaurid material comes from North Africa, including possibly the third most famous of the Spinosaurs, Suchomimus. Yep. Spinosaurus, Baryonyx, and Suchomimus were also the three that were mentioned in Jurassic Park 3. Now, Suchomimus tenorensis comes from also early Cretaceous, 110, 120 million years ago, but in Niger. Named in 1998 from about two-thirds of a skeleton, which is Decent. wonderful. Wow. Like Baryonyx, also had that, like the rest of the group, crocodilian-like face. In fact, Suchomimus means croc mimic. Yes, it does. Like Baryonyx, the first part of it found was a big claw. <laughs> also like Baryonyx, it's around that same size, 30 feet or so. In fact, some people have suggested that Suchomimus might actually be Baryonyx. That'd be awesome. That they might, in fact, be two different species, but perhaps they should belong in the same genus. That Baryonyx might be... Suchomimus might actually be Baryonyx. Interesting. That's for the taxonomists to argue. There's another Spinosaurid from Niger from around the same time called Christatusaurus, named in 1998, which has also been argued that it might be the same thing as Suchomimus, and also might be the same thing as Baryonyx. Uh, Suchomimus it, is Baryonyx, and it just makes sense. And so yeah, there's a whole little trifecta here. <laughs> They're Russian nesting dolls. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they are. They very much are. Christatusaurus is known only from skull fragments, so it makes it very difficult to tell. If anyone will make me Russian nesting dolls with different Spinosaurids painted on them, I'd be Please so happy. <laughs> I'd be so happy. I just had that well, moment. I was like, oh, I want it for Christmas. Speaking of confusing African Spinosaurus, the other big name from the Spinosaurids of Africa is Sigil Massasaurus. Also, this is late Cretaceous, the early part of the late Cretaceous, <gasps> around 100 million years ago, from the Chemchem beds of Morocco, which is the same place that we find a lot of Spinosaurus material. And indeed, Sigil Massasaurus continues, there's a lot of arguing over whether or not Sigil Massasaurus is the same as Spinosaurus. Yeah. Um, or whether some of the Spinosaurus material is actually Sigil Massasaurus, or whether Sigil Massasaurus material might actually be Carcharodontosaurus. Okay. <laughs> so, yeah, so <laughs> there's, like I said, there's a lot of arguing about this Spinosaurus. one. Maybe a tree. <laughs> <laughs> no. Yeah, right. 
<laughs> oh my gosh. Well, what's, what makes it very difficult is the holotype of Sigil Massasaurus. That the, the bone that was named Sigil Massasaurus was one vertebra. Oh. And the bones that were originally named Spinosaurus don't exist anymore. Nope. So most of the good material we have, it's not that, like, there's there's no good skeleton that we can say, that's what Spinosaurus looks like. Yep. We have a bunch of skeletons that we're going, okay, we called this Spinosaurus, but is it actually the same as the original Spinosaurus? And this has been taken up into Sigil Massasaurus, but that was named off of just that one vertebra. So how confidently can we say that this is the same thing as that? And it's just a lot of argument. This is trying to nail down the best way to name these different species. This is where the the rules and legislation of naming species and especially extinct species can get real complicated because now it's it, it's a scientific issue of what is this organism, but the name it should be that should be applied to it is a technical issue of which names came first and what were they applied to originally and what were the descriptors applied to those names. So now it's yeah. almost like a legal matter. It's yes. <laughs> it's almost more of lawyering it. Of technically speaking, you know, bu- bureaucratically, should this be Spinosaurus? Or something new, absolutely. And that's, it's, that's exactly what it is. It's real, and it, it gets, it can get. It's all semantics. Yeah, it's semantics. Well, and it's it not get, all semantics, but some of it is semantics. It, it can get really, really uh, bogged down in these weird situations where you have very closely resembling organisms, and your original was blown up. So, oh yeah. Oh. Hmm? And if you think that all of this mess with the fossils can be frustrating. Let's hop over to South America, where there are abundant spinosaurs, and I'll introduce you to a spinosaur named Irritator. (laughs) I'm obnoxious. (laughs) (laughs) Irritator Challengeri is the best-known spinosaur from South America, discovered in the famous Santana Formation of Brazil. Also early Cretaceous, uh, 110 million years ago or so, roughly the same time as some of the earlier ones that we mentioned. This is this is around the same time as something like Sukamimus. Irritator was named in 1996 from a partial skull. And the reason it's called Irritator is because the authors got it from fossil traders who had attempted to make the skull look better. Oh no. By adding plaster elongation to it. Oh, no. And so when they got it, not only did it have this chunk of plaster added onto it, that made it very hard to study it. So they called it Irritator because it was an irritating fossil to work on. Oh. oh, that's so, that's tragic. Oh, yeah, it sucks. Challenger Eye, and I didn't know this. I knew the Irritator thing. Challenger Eye, the species, is named after Professor Challenger from the Lost World book. Nice! <laughs> yeah, that's pretty cool. This is a fun name. <laughs> yeah, no, it's great. I love it. Notably, uh, they were, when they named it in 96, they were able to notice the crest up toward the, 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 the rear of the snout. Nostrils shifted backwards compared to most other theropods. Secondary palate. Right? It's got these 
classic Spinosaur, what are now classic Spinosaur features. Two other Spinosaurs have been named from Brazil. One, Angaturama, which comes from the same place and the same time as Irritator, and thus, as you might have guessed, has been suggested by many people that it's just Irritator. That's irritating. Yeah, isn't it? <laughs> isn't it, though? <laughs> And then there are some jaw fragments from later in the Cretaceous in Brazil from a different formation uh, named to a genus known as Oxalia. And then there's a bunch of Spinosaurs from Asia, including possibly my favorite. I haven't decided yet, but I'm a big fan, and you'll see why in a moment, of Ichthyovenator, Laosensis. Discovered in Laos from early Cretaceous deposits, again, same age as Irritator and, and Suchomimus, 110, 120 million years ago. Named in 2012, originally known mostly from hip region, hip bones and, and sacral vertebrae. Since then, other vertebrae and teeth have been assigned to it. It was the first definitive Asian Spinosaur, which is pretty cool. And one of its unique features is one of my favorite things to say. It has a sinusoidal dorsosacral sail. <laughs> nice. Nice. Thanks, paleontologists. What does that mean? It has a sail. It has those high neural spines. They are high over the back, dip down before they get to the hips, and then rise up again over the hips. Neat. I've seen it described as having two sails, one over the back and one over the hips. It's a Bactrian uh, Spinosaurus. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> also found in Asia, there is a there are teeth that have been called Siamosaurus from the early Cretaceous of Thailand. And then, here's a fun one, teeth that were originally named Sinopliosaurus, which is a plesiosaur, because they were thought to be plesiosaur teeth, which Ooh, cool. in 2008 were re-identified as a spinosaur. There's also unidentified, unnamed spinosaurus material from Australia. Once again, there's that possible spinosaur material from North America. There are surely more spinosaurs around. They just do not seem to have left a particularly good fossil record. But nonetheless, we've got them on one, two, three, four continents. Good re remains. And that is pretty much the entire Spinosaur family tree. There's not a lot to this group of dinosaurs. Very interesting. It's it's the 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 trend of whether one is another is can get really frustrating, but it's when you have a sparse or rare, you know, collection from a group, it's really difficult to parse out for sure that one specimen is not just a partial of another one or a younger or older or so on and so forth oh yeah and honestly this episode might be outdated by the time it airs <laughs> this is like, yep there and that's why i keep being vague about this number of species and this has been named because it just we once again the solution to this problem is more fossils yep and until we find more of those it's still going to be confusing lots of these i'll throw in a lot of images in the blog post so you can write to us afterwards and tell us what your favorite spinosaurid is i think mine is going to be ichthyovenator that's a pretty cool 
That is a pretty cool one. It's a cool name, too. Irritator wins it for the name. Yeah. Ichthyovenator wins it for the sinusoidal dorsosacral sail. <laughs> also, send us audio recordings of yourself saying sinusoidal dorsosacral sail. I will not be doing that. By the way, sinusoidal is like a sine wave in mm-hmm. that it, it curves up, it curves down, it curves back up. Dorsosacral. Dorso means the back. Sacral means the hip. So it's got a sail over the back and the hip. Yep. So that's what those words mean. (laughs) (laughs) So we've met the Spinosaur family tree, uh, the big Spinosaur family reunion, which is just like your family reunion. If you don't know anything about most of your family members and you you suspect some of them might actually be the same person. (laughs) But now let's let's talk about what I think is the most interesting story, the part of the story. What do we know or think we know? about how they were living. Yeah, this is where it gets complicated. And now there we could talk about the sale and we will, but let's let's jump right into the most exciting part. Where did they live and what did they eat? Yep. You will see it very commonly cited, suggested, reconstructed that Spinosaurus and its relatives were living in the water or at least spending a lot of time in the water eating fish yeah sometimes you see them in the water sometimes you see them hunting like grizzly bears and plucking fish out of the water but yep it's it's pretty heavily implied or suggested and uh that they were fish eaters yep so where does this suggestion come from well as we've been hinting out over the course of this episode the first big clue is their convergence with crocs yes Uh, Convergence, as we've discussed many times before, convergent evolution is when two separate groups of life evolve very similar traits, typically for similar purposes. The shape of the jaws, the long, narrow shape, that rosette at the end where it constricts and then comes back out and you've got a bunch of big teeth at the end, the shape of the teeth, the limited serrations, mm-hmm. right? Being smoother rather than serrated. Like Will said before, they're for grabbing, not for cutting. Yep. These are all features they share with Crocs. Yeah, like that description he just gave could be used for many ancient and some modern Crocs. Where yep. that those are all just features that are common among those two groups. Yep. They also have enlarged neurovascular canals in the snout as sensory receptors. Yep. Which is something you see in crocs, but it's also something you see in other theropods. Yes, that's not that's not completely a connector. Yes. There was a study by Vulo et al. that came out in 2016 that actually also compared spinosaurs to pike conger eels. Huh. This is a type of eel that are fish eaters, bottom-dwelling piscivorous. Piscivorous means fish eating. And they also have the long snout with the little constriction right before the big rosette with the large teeth at the end. They also have those mechanoreceptors at the end. This seems to be a shape of the face that has come up over and over again in fish-catching crocs. Most specifically, spinosaurs have been compared to gharials. Yes, they do get compared to that a lot. The Garials go all the way back to episode two mm-hmm. and listen to Will These explain your, the Garial long snouts. Very slender, extremely thin snouts, sharp, tiny, needle-like teeth for grabbing fish. Yep. 
There have also been some biomechanical studies that have found some spinosaurs, at least certain spinosaurs, might have had similar stress resistance. So their jaws were built to resist stresses, similarly to modern crocs. Mm -hmm. uh, notably, the ability to hold on to struggling prey. Yeah, to clamp. Yep, because if you're catching, you know, if you're killing something and then eating it, that's different from grab. If anyone here has ever tried to pick up a fish, <laughs> yeah, you're trying to do that with your face. Yep. <laughs> and spinosaurs tended to live alongside very large fish. Oh, yeah, they were impressive. Another thing that has been pointed out, there was a study in 2016 that looked at the back of the skull, the back of the jaw of some spinosaur material and found that they appear to have been able to spread the back of the jaw to the sides enough to widen the entrance to the throat. Ooh. Similar to some pterosaurs and pelicans. For swallowing. For swallowing big things. That's cool. <laughs> so there is this sort of picture that the morphology is, mm -hmm. is giving us of an animal that would have, several animals that would have been capable of catching, holding, and swallowing fish. And even things like the, the nostrils being moved up on the face if you're dipping your snout into the water. Yeah. Not dunking your nose all the time. Secondary palate is another thing that's very uh, notable among crocs. Uh, yes. Actually, probably in big part for strengthening and stuff like that. So it's there's a lot there to connect. Absolutely. So it has been suggested by many, many people that spinosaurs are probably fish eaters. Yes. And indeed, many spinosaur material is found in coast or river deposits. The holotype of baryonyx was found with fish scales in its gut. Yep. <laughs> so we know that at least one baryonyx ate at least one fish. <laughs> this is a good clue that, yeah, these were fish-eating <clears throat> uh, animals, at least in part. But there have also there are also gut contents of spinosaurs that have other dinosaur remains in them. Yeah. Famously, there is at least one case of a spinosaur tooth found embedded in the vertebrae of a pterosaur. That's awesome. <laughs> Yeah. Man, I want to see that happen. <laughs> Just grab it right out of the air. That's what I'm picturing. Like that, if you've ever seen that, um, there's a there was a video that, that I've seen a bunch of times of a pelican eating a pigeon. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's flapping. And... <laughs> so we know that Spinosaurus weren't exclusively fish eaters. And there has been suggestion that they're perhaps opportunistic, per, you know, but they were probably very well capable and perhaps even specially adapted to eating fish and that's that's something that is that that is a uh jump to a conclusion that we have, can even make with modern groups uh they're often compared to gharials the false gharial uh tomistoma is very similar shape long slender snout one of you know next to the gharial itself the thinnest and narrowest snouts of all the modern crocs so it was assumed mm -hmm. they were also major fish eaters as the gharial is when stomach contents was actually studied they hunt pigs and monkeys and lots of stuff. and there's been two cases of them consuming humans 
So <laughs> long, slender snout does not mean delicate fish eating alone. Yes. As we know, crocs today eat all sorts of sized food. So just because they had that croc shape does not mean they were only able to eat fish. They could take down a lot of stuff potentially. Absolutely. And that's, and I'm going to mention this again in a little bit. One of the key points of biology is that form fits function, mm-hmm. but it doesn't always fit it perfectly. No. If you're hungry, you're going to eat what's in front of you. <laughs> yes. <laughs> now, a lot of suggestions and reconstructions of spinosaurs go further than just them eating fish. It's not just them standing on the side of a river like you said, like a grizzly bear yes. or a heron snatching fish. A lot of times people will reconstruct them actually in the water. Yeah. There is a list of evidences that have been pointed to to suggest that spinosaurs were at least partially adapted to an aquatic lifestyle. For example, there have been studies that have shown that they have these dense, thick-walled limb bones, which is something you tend to see in semi-aquatic animals. Semi-aquatic birds and reptiles and even mammals will get these denser bone structures in contrast to the more hollow open spaces, especially within dinosaurs. Yeah, so as not to float. Like Will said about the nostrils are moved partially up the snout instead of being all the way at the tip. They are still on the sides. They're not necessarily up at the top. That's interesting. Uh, There is one report uh, from earlier this year that pointed out spinosaur material that appeared to show elevated orbits. Which is to say the eyes were raised up on the skull. So if you imagine a crocodile or a hippo with its face mostly in the water, but just the eyes poking up. Cool. The fact that they have that reduced pelvis and back legs suggests that, you know, maybe they're not spending as much time running around on land. They have these flat-bottomed foot claws, which have been suggested as useful either for paddling or if not actually swimming, walking on soft mud and such. Yeah. In fact, these features of the back limbs have been compared to early cetaceans. Early whales. That's cool. Yeah. Go back to last episode. And then, of course, a lot of these same things were pointed at in the Ibrahim paper to suggest that they were quadrupedal. Yes. Right? And even if they're not actually quadrupedal, still the suggestion that they are not on, they're not running around on land. Yeah, they're not wholly terrestrial. Like tyrannosaurs are. Tyrannosaurs are cursorial, built to move uh, either to run or to walk fast and long distances. Mm-hmm. There have also been chemical studies. So isotope studies. We've talked about isotopes in the past that the stuff your body is made of, the oxygen and carbon and whatnot, comes from your food and your environment. Yeah, one, last episode, we that came up a couple of times with aquatic lifestyles. Yep. There was a study in 2018 that found spinosaur uh, material with a freshwater food source signal, the kind of isotope ratio you'd expect to see gained from freshwater food. There was a study in 2010 that famously pointed out that the Isotope ratios in the bones of spinosaurs are similar to semi-aquatic reptiles and hippos today, which is notable because hippos and spinosaurs have very different diets. Yes, they do. So presumably they're gaining that chemical makeup from their habitat. 
All this together does seem to suggest that they are spending lots of time in water, and with that morphological evidence that they are at least adapted somewhat to do that. But <laughs> there's a reason we're arguing about this. Some isotope studies don't show that. Some specimens show that their isotopes are much closer to other dinosaurs that we know or very likely lived on land. And in fact, the 2010 paper pointed out that Spinosaurus remains from North Africa have more of a terrestrial signature. And they pointed out that the North African fossil records where Spinosaurus is found also have lots of large crocodilomorphs. Mm. And that maybe the Spinosaurus in those areas were spending less time in the water because there was more competition down there. That's cool. Which brings us to the other point that people have pointed out is that aside from a lot of these features we just talked about, Spinosaurus are still very much like other terrestrial theropods, right? They don't have a paddling tail. They have the legs underneath the body, uh, which is different from what you see in crocs, for example, which will do this sprawling thing to help them swim and then move their legs underneath their body to walk on land. Yep. So Spinosaurs, there is a general, I wouldn't call it a consensus because... Spinosaurs. Yep. But there is this, you know, repeated suggestion that these might be aquatic capable. Yeah. Spending lots of time in water, probably eating fish at least a good chunk of the time, but not dedicated to the water. These aren't swimming necessarily through the water. They're not incapable of moving on land. They're kind of occupying that middle position. It, 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 Bears are the thing that come to mind for what we would compare this to nowadays, where it's like the Kodiak bear gets a huge portion of its food from the ocean and river. Mm -hmm. Like whale carcasses and the the salmon that they catch and all of those are a majority for many of them what they survive off of in between hibernations. But if you just looked at the bear, then you wouldn't think they're a swimmer. They can swim and they're very effective hunters in the water. You know, so it's, it's kind of got that, that weird middle ground of you, you sure are spending a lot of time there, but you also don't seem like you're living there. Oh yeah. Well, and I've seen them compared. Grizzlies is something I've seen Spinosaurus compared to, especially with the big claws. Yeah. Right. Grabbing fish, swiping them out and then devouring. I've seen them compared to herons and other wading birds that you're sticking your face in the water, uh, spending a lot of time walking around in the water, but you're not actually a swimmer. Others have compared them more closely to crocs that yep. are, you're swimming after your prey and you're ambush hunting or whatever crocs might do in the water. Yeah, you, you, you can see a lot of paleo art nowadays, you know, recently of them swimming down rivers. Yes, and that brings us to the one study I knew we had to mention. <laughs> now, when I say this is a recent study, uh, we are recording this episode on Monday. This study released on Thursday. Yep. This is Henderson 2018, the latest thing that's been making the news in the, the Spinosaurus dinosaur news circles. Also, this was uh, something that was requested for us to talk about. 
uh, in a message that we noticed halfway through recording this episode yep. that Josh sent us on Facebook. So, Josh, we're going to talk about this paper for you. <laughs> so, the Ibrahim paper famously suggested that the center of mass of Spinosaurus was too far forward. It was a quadruped. It was swimming around. They also suggested that it might have undulated itself through the water, swimming after creatures. The Henderson paper attempted to digitally model Spinosaurus again, using the same data that the last paper did. And they found a few really interesting things that they pointed out. Number one, they found, uh, as other people did, that the center of mass is closer to the hips, making them perfectly competent bipeds. Also, they found that their Spinosaurus is, in fact, able to float with its head and neck held above the water, which would seem to be a point in the direction of aquatic living, but that's also true of other theropods. In fact, that's true of most vertebrates. Yeah, that that's dogs, us. <laughs> yep. It's how you Absolutely. it's how you move over water if you don't live in it. Is <laughs> you doggy paddle. Yes, exactly. <laughs> most animals are capable of swimming at least a bit. Yeah. It's the other stuff they found that's more interesting. Because they found in their model, at least Henderson found in his model, that while floating, Spinosaurus does not appear, from the model, to be very stable. When you float a croc model, or when you float a penguin model, if they start to tip, they right themselves. Yeah. The way the animal is shaped is it rights itself. Spinosaurus in their model tended to roll over, which ain't great. Uh, although I did see a picture online of someone who said, uh, I don't remember where I saw this, but it was a piece of art that said, we figured out how Spinosaurus lived, and it showed it upside down swimming <laughs> through the water. That's fantastic. When I first... Using the, the, the sail as a rudder. That's awesome. When I first read it, my first thought was, it just lives like a flounder, just on its side. Yes. That big that big sail lies flat against the ground. and It, it has two eyes on one yeah. side of the sail. Mm-hmm. The other thing they found is that their their model of Spinosaurus was unsinkable. And not like the Titanic, but actually unsinkable. Yeah. That even when they dramatically deflated the lungs, it wouldn't submerge. Which is different than what you see in modern-day semi-aquatic birds, mammals, reptiles. They're all able to sink, because you have to be able to sink. Yep, because if you're going to live in the water, you don't want to just live on the surface. Now, Henderson points to all of this as suggesting that this is not an animal that would have been capable of hunting in the water. You're not swimming. You're not being a croc. You are perfectly capable on land, probably never trying to swim too much, but hunting in the shallows or along the shorelines like a grizzly, like a heron. Yep. Now, this is the latest study. Personally, it looks good to me, I guess. Yeah. I don't... I mean, I'm not a digital modeler. Uh, Complaints have been levied against this, notably by Ibrahim, (laughs) whose results this directly contradicts, uh, who pointed out that this is just based on modeling, not based on examining the actual fossils, which is a fair point. Yes. Based on all the other evidence that we have for Spinosaurus and its relatives living, I think the shoreline model... Seems to make a lot of sense. The The image of them living like grizzlies or like herons, spending time in the water, but not necessarily living in the water. Yeah, that's definitely uh, the one that, that I'd lean towards. 
because yeah. to to live in the water that that's a pretty extreme. I mean, as we discussed last episode, that's a pretty extreme shift. Like that's not you know to go aquatic is not you know you can tell terrestrial from aquatic crocs pretty easily because once you decide I'm going to spend most of my life in the water there's some shifts you need to make if you really want to be good at that and yep like last episode we talked about whales moving into mm-hmm. the water yeah and so that's that's kind of a if it seems like or it feels like we should be seeing a lot more features you know, if yeah. this is an aquatic dinosaur. And to that, Tom Holtz, the eminent Dr. Tom Holtz, pointed out in one of the articles about the Henderson paper that sometimes, and this goes back to the form and function thing, behavior comes before the adaptation. Which is very true. It's possible these animals were living lots of time in the water and hadn't yet adapted to it. I, it's, there's a... But there's a particular turtle that's an aquatic turtle, and it, when you look at it, it just looks like a box turtle. It does not look like it should be able to swim. I can't remember <laughs> what it was called. Well, we talked about this in the Speculative Evolution episode, episode 39, about all yesterdays having their mm-hmm. protoceratops in trees. Yeah. It's actually a very interesting point. That's very cool. And mm, this like brings it. up the question. Yeah, isn't it cool? <laughs> I like it. That made me. That one made me happy. <laughs> Now, this brings up my favorite thing about this is this question of what, right, what good is an animal that can't quite make it on land, that can't quite make it in the water, if in fact this is what we're looking at? And the answer might be a new a vocabulary term for our listeners, niche partitioning. Mm-hmm. I said niche, niche. I, I made, listen, any way I say this is going to make somebody angry. Niche I, I, partitioning. I I say niche. Niche. It's a niche. Is... On this podcast, we say niche. <laughs> as long as you are talking. We on. are the knights. Okay. <laughs> so niche partitioning is how you divide up ecological space between different creatures. One thing that a lot of people have pointed out is that the spinosaurs tend to be found in fossil sites that have other large theropods, which brings up the question of how are you getting enough food if there's if you have Spinosaurus and Carcharodontosaurus yeah. and other large theropods in the same space, well, if you're a Spinosaurus, you can eat fish. Yep. You can hunt in the waters where the Carcharodontosaurus can't. And if you're in a space with lots of large crocodiliforms, you can go on land where they can't. So this might be a creature that is capable of getting just enough out of both realms. Who's sitting on the fence. And yes. just reaching over both sides. <clears throat> and this makes me... I love the idea of a Spinosaurus... Of a movie with Spinosaurus where instead of chasing people around an island a bunch of times, they meet it as like a crocodilomorph kind of sea monster yes. creature. Yes, And they're like, oh my goodness, we have to get out of the lake. And then they have to get out of the lake to escape the creature and then they run across the land and find another body of water where they're like, all right, we got away from it. And then it walks up behind them because <laughs> it can do both. Yep. I love it. And honestly, the image of the shore-dwelling or semi-aquatic Spinosaurs not only makes them super cool dinosaurs, not only makes them the only known group of non-bird dinosaurs adapted for semi-aquatic living but it's just such a cool 
eco space, ecological yes, habit to occupy. What a neat group of animals. These are a, a interesting group, very bizarre, lots of mystery and and answers yet to be, you know, divulged for questions we still have, but they're they they've got definitely something interesting going on. Yeah, that that's obvious by looking at them. And before we wrap up, two other areas of their lifestyle that we have to mention because we can't do an episode about spinosaurs without mentioning True. the arms and the sail. Real quick, big arms, big claw, why? Lots of suggestions have been put forth as to why they have the big arms. Uh, we talked about the quadrupedality idea, the idea that they're walking on them. Probably not, maybe. Early suggestions included digging into carcasses. Interesting. Or digging into the ground. They have these arms that look like they might be quite good at digging. Mm -hmm. Digging nests, digging for prey. If you're really living in the shallows, digging through the mud. Looking for lungfish. Absolutely. Others have suggested, and in fact, Henderson himself makes this comparison of the grizzly bear. Yes. Just like you said before, you're hooking fish. All three of these ideas, digging, uh, any digging or hooking idea, has been criticized for the fact that the, the arms don't seem to be wonderfully adapted, particularly for any of those. <laughs> but again... As we said, adaptation is a thing that takes time. Yeah, maybe they were maybe they were doing their best. It's and there's all those weird things that it could be for. Where maybe it was for mating display or to grab on to the mate during court. I mean, there's weird stuff that it could be for that. Oh yeah, you you can't even think of necessarily because it's it could be very specific. <laughs> and then there's the sail. We have to talk about the sail. Spinosaurus is famous for having these two meter long vertebral spines on its back. Ichthyovenator had a sail. Suchomimus has at least somewhat of a sail. This is the thing that these animals are known for. Early on, it was suggested that it might not be a sail, but a hump. <laughs> yeah. That it might be like a bison or a camel where you just got this big fatty hump on the back for fat storage or whatever else. This, I believe, has fallen a bit out of favor. There doesn't seem to be a lot of evidence that you'd have a lot of sort of tissue and muscle attachment up there. Instead, most reconstructions today will reconstruct it as a sail, like Dimetrodon. Yep. Like certain lizards and fish you see today, this big sail. But the difference between something like fish, right? Fish sails are very maneuverable. Mm-hmm. Right, great for undulating and swimming, and swimming has been suggested <laughs> as a use for Spinosaurus's sail. In fact, some have suggested that maybe it was not only using it for swimming, but for hunting, oh. the way a sailfish does to like scare and herd fish into a little pot. Who knows? That's very speculative. The more common suggestions are that it is probably either thermoregulatory that you're absorbing or releasing heat the way that, you know, elephants use their ears or, you know, this has been suggested for a lot of strange features. Or the go-to answer for all strange morphological features of prehistoric creatures, species signaling. Sex. Sexual display. <laughs> Sex. Sex. <laughs> Sex. Sexual display or signaling between members of your own species for whatever reason. Yeah. Uh, the Ibrahim paper actually pointed out that 
if they are in fact swimming around a bunch, or even if they're not, even if they're just waiting, having your big sail above the water might be useful for signaling where somebody mm-hmm. can't see most of the rest of your body. So that could be cool. Others have said it's kind of weird to have a nose crest and a sail. Yep. But then again, these are weird animals, so who knows? Yeah, I mean, it's these could be the dinosaurs of paradise. Yeah. Oh my, Will. <laughs> you just made Spinosaurus way better. <laughs> like, maybe they were just all about decoration and display. It could be. That's a fantastic thought. It could be really. Like, and that's. We don't know what the sail would have looked like, what the patterns or coloration mm-hmm. could be on there. I love picturing it as this, like, mosaic of colors. You know, yeah. We don't know that's what it looked like, but that would be very interesting if they were using it for this very intricate display. Now I want to find, I really want to find Spinosaur skin impressions so mm-hmm. we could see if it had like ribbon-like feathers sticking off of oh, it. Oh, that'd be awesome. All sorts of ornamentation. This is now my headcanon. The what? This is, what's, this is what Spinosaur is. It was a 50-foot-long bird of paradise. Yep. Yep. <laughs> With its big pelican mouth going, <laughs> arr, arr, arr. <laughs> collecting fish for its mate, digging a nest like a bowerbird. Yep, yep. Take that, everyone who thought little... they were intimidating. <gasps> this is, here we go. This is it. We I figured it out. It. Maybe they spread their arms out to the side and yes. did flashy displays. The the claws could just be for competition between them. They'd like chest up to each other and box each other for their yeah. bowerbird territories. I bet they made goofy noises. Oh, they'd be, and they'd be so loud. They would. They're huge. They'd be huge and loud. It'd just be like a trumpeting band practicing. They had, I imagine, a, a combination of a crocodilian rumble and a bird's squawking. Yeah, a pelican be going. Oh, that and pelican be noise, doing that, like the um, that really yeah. weird, that really weird deep rumbly noise they do. All right, I have a new image. Yep, artists who listen to our show, <laughs> you have your please. next mission. <laughs> please make this happen. <laughs> I want it on a T-shirt. Oh, yes. That's, that'd be wonderful. I think that's enough Spinosaurs for one day. <laughs> for any sane person in one day. What a cool group of dinosaurs. Uh, honestly, it's one of those groups that I already think it's cool and it can only get better with more discoveries. I agree. Uh, we, we've squeezed a probably slightly extra long episode out of a relatively poorly known group of dinosaurs. I can't wait to see what Spinosaurs... The sequel episode looks like five years from now. <laughs> Spinos- previously known as Spinosaurs, the Baryonyxes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. And now, believe it or not, we've discovered a Spinosaur runway. <sighs> Listeners, thank you very much for joining us on this uh, ridiculous episode. Episode 42. Fitting, isn't it? <laughs> We will do more dinosaurs in the future if you want us to talk about more dinosaurs. There's a whole, there's actually an entire section of our request list now. Yes. That is dinosaur requests. We sectioned it off and we'll work through it. We'll get to it. This was the most requested dinosaur episode after the evolution of birds. So keep the suggestions coming and we will keep the episodes going. Huge thanks to the four, nay, five people who recommended. (laughs) various things we discussed in this episode uh, and giving us the chance to talk about yeah it's just such a such a fun discussion today they're charismatic and they're weird and they're cool it's just it's hard not to get 
enraptured by them. We release episodes every fortnight, so stay tuned in two weeks for episode 43. In the meantime, with September coming up, keep your eye out for our Spotlight series. Yeah. Interviewing paleontologists from around the paleosphere. As always, send us your suggestions, your questions, your comments. Follow us on the social medias. Join us on Patreon if you so wish. If you are brave enough. And if you are available and present, come say hi to us at DragonCon. Please do. It'd be so much fun. Other than all of that, thank you once again for listening. As always for listening. We hope you will join us next time. I'm out of words to say. It is. It is the time 42 episodes in you'd think i'd have an outro phrase i don't <laughs> nah nah no end of the episode that's it and done. trail off Fine. just trail we're just gonna trail into we're just gonna just, be where we'll be this talking is the scene where we're riding off into the sunset just and we'll slowly change we'll slowly talking about something random roll just credits don't drop curtain everybody laugh good joke uh <laughs> <laughs> Outro music. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Common Descent podcast. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and check our WordPress blog for pictures and links after each episode. Huge thanks to our patrons whose support helps keep this podcast running and who get access to bonus goodies on Patreon. The song you're hearing is called On the Origin of Species by Protodome, which we found at ocremix.org. Thanks again for listening. We hope you'll join us next time. <laughs> <laughs>